0: Further into Galatians, but not much further. Turn to Galatians. I had every intention of finishing chapter three this morning, but I realized it wasn't going to happen. So we're going to have one more after this in Galatians three. But Galatians three twenty three, and we'll uh, pray before we get into the word. Father, you've made it plain that the gospel is uh, your power unto salvation, and as we have been saved, are being saved, and look with anticipation toward our ultimate salvation, we continue to look to your gospel on a weekly and daily and even hourly and minute-by-minute basis. You've also taught us by your word that without the Holy Spirit, our hearts would be cold and hard and dark. So we pray for those true manifestations of the Spirit this morning in uh, this assembly, that the word preached would be received warmly, that our hearts would be softened, so that the two-edged sword might be plunged deep, reaching the conscience and the affections, and that your words would illumine truth in such a way that we would not only see it and adopt it, but live by it. So these... Uh, things that we ask you to do for your glory, the glory of your name, and on the merits of your Son, we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We will read um, from verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen. may be seated. Paul's been driving home the same point that he's been driving home in Galatians. Um, And really it's summed up well in Galatians 2.16, where he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. That's really a great summary of the book of Galatians, especially the first half. His argument up to this point in in chapter 3 has been centered around this historical... Redemptive historical idea of the promise made to Abraham. Um, And in brief, the idea here is God does it and we don't. A promise is a promise and we don't add anything to the promise by our works. So the main thrust of this chapter, well, the the details are um, difficult of his argument. They take some unraveling. um, But Really, it's a simple gospel at the heart of it, that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law. So in our passage this morning, he continues to deal with this question, Why the law then? And his emphatic answer is that the law and the promise both are all about Jesus. It's always about Christ. And how do we obtain this promise? He he tells us it's by being united to Christ by faith. So this morning, um, we will look at the first half of that. That is, the, the law is all, all about Christ. It's always about Christ. And the next week, we'll look at the promise. I had intention to cover both, but I will just have to deal with one because it was um, so much information. So next week, we'll see how the promise is all about Christ. This week is about how the law is all about Christ. So I was uh, a part of a house building project in Lagrange, Wyoming. I know some of you are familiar with Lagrange, out in the boonies um, of of eastern Wyoming, about 20 or 30 minutes from the Nebraska border. And I did that for about six months in 2007, 2008. It was fairly high dollar. It was 20 sided house. We called it the Round House Project, and. Nebra our Eastern um, Wyoming is pretty flat, but that area has some really beautiful bluffs that that stick up in the houses ne- nestled right up against these bluffs and so the, the folks who built it um, they lived in Kansas at the time and until they moved they they allowed ministry folks to come and stay there so our family got to vacation there every now and then and uh, both while working there and vacationing, these bluffs provided some fun if gusty hiking. Um, And there's one spot in particular about a quarter mile south of the house that I found interesting. It was kind of a relatively, compared to the other bluffs, a small knob. And it was connected to the main bluffs by this narrow strip of of land. Um, And probably at its narrowest point, it was about a foot to 18 inches wide. So to get on top of this knob, you'd have to hike up and walk this knife edge and at some point sort of scoot the knife edge. Um, (laughs) And if if you were to fall, it, it wouldn't kill you, but it'd probably mess you up. Uh, and, and the key, of course, in those situations is to keep your eyes ahead, to focus on the destination, not look too far one way or the other or down. And um, and fear would obviously probably set in if, and increase your chances of falling. So you don't want to look to the right or to the left, but look straight ahead. Now, maintaining a proper understanding of the law of God is a bit like walking one of those knife-edge bluffs. Uh, on the one side you can fall off as legalism, and on the other side you can fall off as antinomianism. And I've defined legalism before um, like this. It, it's, number one, binding the conscience of people with laws that are not God's law. Or it's requiring uh, law-keeping for Salvation, or to make obedience meritorious. So it's not like I feel like oftentimes legalism is defined as excessive obedience, but that's of course not the case. Um, if we again, antinomianism on the other side is um, from the word, Greek words "anti," meaning against, and namas, meaning law. So against law, so we just do away with law entirely, whether it's from our rebellion of our hearts or a misreading of the word of God saying that the law is fulfilled, and misunderstanding what that means. Whatever the case, we cast law completely to the side. Now I think the root of both of those errors, in some ways, is the same. Uh, legalistic type folks believe that the problem with our church and with with the the culture is antinomianism. So they'll hammer Obedience. On the other side, antinomians believe legalism is the problem, so they'll hammer on freedom. But just like walking that, that knife edge sp- spine, both sides are looking to either side, and the key is to look straight ahead and to look at Christ instead. If we have our eyes focused on Christ, we'll ro- ma- maintain both a robust understanding of freedom and of obedience, and in fact, the two things will um undergird one another if our focus is on excuse me is on Christ. Uh, so the Galatians of course here are stumbling toward legalism. And Galatians three is Paul's plea to convince them to, to get their eyes up and to get their eyes back on Christ. Um, and they, like we ourselves are prone to do, we're forgetting that the promise and the law are all always about Christ. It always comes back to him. And so that's really what I want you to walk away with this message this morning, is that when you notice yourself drifting, which we all drift, the key is not to course-correct and swing to the other side. Instead, the key, the, 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 the course-correct protocol is to get your eyes up and forward on Christ. And Because if we're just constantly trying to swing back and forth, we're always going to be falling off over the edge. So if you're drifting, odds are you've forgotten. To look to Christ. Uh, this message originally had two points, like I said, but now we're down to one, but the law is about Christ. And next week we'll see the promise also is about Christ. Uh, and I think it's an innate drive that we humans have that we desire approval. I don't know if you've read any of the uh, table talk this month from March, but it's all about fear. And there's several of those articles that are great about desiring approval and desiring um, to measure up to uh, for people in the society or in the church or to God or whomever um, and we want to win the favor of God and man and our vocations we work hard to earn respect from our co-workers from our bosses um, in society we tailor our behavior to win admiration from people in our circles and we do strive to impress the Lord with things we can do for him that That's a natural desire of our hearts. And the Galatians were slipping into a misunderstanding. They were saying something like, the reason the law was given, of course, was to tell us how to earn God's favor. But Paul is adamant that they're missing really the entire point of the law. And the purpose of the law was and is to drive us to Christ. He's reiterating what he said in the last section we went through. A couple weeks ago, 19 through 22, that the law was given in fact to increase sin. And that the law was given for the purpose of giving life and righteousness, or if it was for life and righteousness, then law and promise would be at odds. But as it is, they're not at odds. He's very clear. The law was never meant to give righteousness and life. So in verses 23 through 25, or 26 here, he shows us Um, two qualities that the law has. Um, Number one is that the law is bondage. And number two, that the law was meant to be temporary. The law is bondage and it's temporary. And his goal is to show that the law was never given to help us earn God's favor. Instead, it was always meant to drive us to Christ. Um, So that first quality there, that it's bondage, um, it's, he says at first, there's two illustrations, and the first one is that it's, it's like a prison. The law is like a prison. And then he goes on to say that it's like a guardian or attendant. So both of these images teach us that the law is bondage. First, the law is, is a prison, it's bondage. In verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And the previous verse, verse 22, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under law or under sin. For Paul to be under law and to be under sin is really the same thing because the law was given to increase transgression. As long as you're under the law, you're under the strain and burden of guilt, like Christian trying to carry his burden, toiling under a load of sin and all of the co- that the covenant at Sinai has to offer sinners is really the curse of covenant breaking because we're all covenant breakers we're all sinners it doesn't offer us any relief kind of like Luther who would of course labor and labor to do what was right and he famously wore out the poor fellow who would have to hear his confessions and he really didn't rightly grasp the the holiness of god and the, the the breadth of that gap between us and God. Um, but for a legalist, he he sort of seemed to get it more than most. And that drove him mad. He He wrote, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and austere life? I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded Him only as a severe and terrible judge, portrayed as seated on a rainbow. So I think that's the perfect picture of the bondage of the law, what the law does to us without Christ. It drives us crazy. Without Christ, the law drives us to despair. The the more Luther tried to please God, the more sin increased because the more he despised God and hated God. So the law is bondage. Uh, The second illustration is that the law is a guardian. This is what the ESV says. I think I like attendant or custodian uh, a little bit better. Guardian is is what the ESV uses twenty-four. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So what? This is often translated tutor. You've probably heard that the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. And I think that tutor is an unhelpful translation because a tutor is a teacher. Um, It's an instructor, like. The Greek word didaskalos is an instructor, a teacher of doctrine. And the word Paul uses here is, uh, paidagogos, paidagogos. You can hear the word um, pedag- pedagogy that we get our word from, which for us means teaching or instruction, a method of teaching or instruction. Um, but it's bad practice to read a modern understanding of a, of a word back into the original meaning and etymology. Of its root, that's not what it meant then. Um, the one lexicon says it means uh, that a pedagogueos was a man, usually a slave, whose task was to conduct a boy to and from school and to supervise and direct his general conduct. He was not a teacher. So basically, these people who had this role were a slave, and they would accompany this boy pretty much all the time making sure he did his homework, <laughs> following him to and from school, um, making keeping an eye on his morals, making sure he wasn't with the wrong crowd. Um, this is what the role of a, of a paedagogos was. And the law functioned as a paedagogos, and it has some good effect, like, like they did um, in Paul's day. It was a monitor on the moral life of the people of God and guiding them in the righteous standards of God. But ultimately, that function was also a form of bondage. The strange irony of the the Pythagogos is that a free boy, and probably a boy of means, is subjected to the authority of a slave. Additionally, this boy is one step removed from his father, in a sense, instead of the father taking direct supervision of the son, the slave served as something of an intermediary between the father and the son. And also the law, as Pythagogos, is bondage because it's something that constantly reminds us of our shortcomings. The Greek lexicon Thayer says that the Mosaic law is likened to a tutor because it arouses the consciousness of sin and is called a guardian unto Christ because those who have learned by experience with the law that they are not and cannot be commended to God by their works welcome the more eagerly the hope of salvation offered them through the death and resurrection of Christ, the Son of God. So the law is, is bondage. It, it cannot earn us favor with God. It was never intended to serve that purpose of earning us favor with God. It was given to imprison everyone under sin, to be a strict guardian over us unrelentingly. It it beats us up with every little failure and reminds us of the curse. The insanity really of legalism is that it's a voluntary um, wandering back into bondage. Once we've been released, and as Christians, that's what Paul's telling the, the Galatians who are already... Confessing Christians, don't go back. Don't wander back into that. You're just voluntarily going back into slavery. We can easily fall into that trap. So I'd urge you throughout the week, think of ways that we fall into the trap of legalism. One example. You must read your Bible and pray every morning for one hour. And that would be good. But will it earn you credit with God? Will it earn you extra favor with God? And that is the danger of pietism. Pietism is an almost ex-opere operato mindset. By the doing, it is done. If I read my Bible and pray, God will, will lift me up spiritually. Automatically, He will give me grace. Spending time in the Word and prayer Communion with God is essential for the Christian life, but if we make a particular form of piety, a law to be universally obeyed, or a means of proving to God how dedicated we are to Him, then that's binding the conscience, and that's trying to earn God's favor, make it meritorious. That's one of many ways that we can turn good things into legalistic things. The law as a means of earning God's favor with God is bondage for us. It drives us more and more into sin and it accuses us and points us to our failures. And really it was always meant to do that because that points us to our need, our our great need for a liberator, for a savior. And the second quality of the law is that it was temporary. It was temporary. The nature of... The role of this guardian, that's the nature of it, is that it is a temporary role. Once the young boy reaches manhood, his job is done. There's no more need for the the paedagogos anymore. We saw this doctor this last week in Denver, and he told us that he prescribes medications or supplements for a time. Imagine that. There's an, an end time. And once they've accomplished their intended purpose, their job is done. And he told us about one of his patients who this other doctor had prescribed him blood pressure medication to lower his blood pressure, but never checked and never took him off it. So the the guy had really low blood pressure and was causing all kinds of havoc in his body. The law served a purpose in God's plan of redemption for a specific amount of time. It, It was a temporary purpose. Notice here, he says in verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law and imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The time has passed. Paul here parallels the coming of faith with the coming of Christ. And he doesn't mean that that before Christ there was no faith at all, because he just made a huge deal out of the fact that Abraham was justified by faith. So he doesn't mean there was no faith before Christ came, but that the historical reality in which we place our trust was made plain. Uh, Calvin says that those things which were dimly seen during the age of darkness and shadow has now come to life. That's what he means by faith coming or arriving. Uh, In World War II, the Japanese held a small Philippine island. And when the the U.S. came, they defeated Japan on this island. And as the forces were being defeated, a guerrilla warfare specialist um, escaped into the jungle and connected with four four other men who had escaped into the jungle. Um, this this guy's name was Hiro Anada, and of course in 1945, a year later, the Japanese surrendered uh, surrendered to the U.S. But Anada and these other guys were out in the in the jungle. They had no idea; they didn't know the war was over, so they continued to um, undertake their guerrilla warfare. They killed farmers, they raided farms and stole meat. They were still fighting the war. <clears throat> over the course of time, one of his com- companions left, surrendered to the Philippine army. Um, the other two were ultimately killed. And he continued. They would fly over and drop flyers for him to let him know this this, this is over. And he, he would ignore them. He thought they were propaganda. And then in 1974, this Japanese adventurer... Um, norio suzuki said he he said that he wanted to see three things he wanted to see lieutenant anada a panda and the abominable snowman and in that order so he tracked him down he found him and he communicated that the war was long over but this guy he wouldn't surrender until his commanding officer relieved him of duty so they tracked down the commanding officer who had become a book salesman (laughs) brought him to this island and he relieved him of duty So this man fought World War II for 29 years after World War II was over. Now living under the law after Christ has come is like fighting a war that's been over for 29 years. It's not that just you're choosing the wrong option. You're choosing an option that's no longer valid. It's not applicable. Its time has come and gone. It was a prison until the coming faith would be revealed. It was a guardian until Christ came. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. Its purpose as bondage and as guardian was a temporary one. And ultimately, that was all to lead us again to Christ. If God had left us there with with the despair of the law, of not being able to live up the law, that that would be a tragedy. We might even be able to accuse God of being cruel for that. But He doesn't leave us there. His purposes and intentions are great for for our good and His glory. Uh, Luther comments here that it is not enough to be imprisoned by the law, for if nothing following, we would be driven to despair and die in our sins. But Paul adds that we are not shut up forever, but in order to bring us to Christ who is the end of the law. That phrase, Christ is the end of the law, comes from Romans chapter 10. Where he says, speaking of the Jews, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Luther f- further comments on this, that it is not that the law is abolished or that the old law is has given, given way to a new one or that he is a judge who must be pacified by what we do, he is the end of the law to those who believe. That is to say, everyone who believes in Him is righteous, and He will never accuse such people. The law then is good and holy and just if we use it as we should. And that's, that's a great point. I always want to um, make that point as well, that the law is not abolished, that, that we do indeed please God by works of the law, but it's always in Christ when we 're in Christ, he accepts our good works in Christ, but as a means of obtaining favor and righteousness as our standing before God it 's useless we can 't do it i I counted I think I counted right I have twelve adopted cousins, uh, my closest friend growing up in childhood and his brother were both adopted. I know quite a few of you have adopted. And and I've seen firsthand the challenges that kind of a whole family of sinners can bring about in that circumstance. But I've never seen a situation where adopted sonship is earned by merit. Like You're more a son this week because you've been better this week. Of course not. Yes, the child must follow house rules, but their adoption is legal and settled as soon as the papers are signed, or however that works. They are a son or daughter as of that moment. And how much more in God's family, which is perfect and sinless on His part, is our status as sons and daughters, secure and unconditional. The moment we believe, we are found to be in Christ, and it is that moment that we call God Father, and we get to call Jesus Elder Brother. Hebrew says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. That's that's mind blowing to me. That the God of the universe is transcended to become man, and he's not afraid to call me brother. I think that the reality is that the law, or the 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 the, the guardian, was a common thing in those days, and as you might expect. Um, The treatment of the boys that they were over varied a fair amount. Some were cruel. They would beat and abuse the boys underneath them. Others were despised and ignored and rejected. The the boys would arrogantly say, well, you're a slave and I don't have to listen to you. And some of them were really became like a second father to the boys. And I think that the law functioned more in the harsher sense and in the sense that the people of God ignored the law. and, And it was a harsh taskmaster upon people. But I think the Judaizers and the the Galatians are beginning to think that the law, as a guardian, is almost like a second father and they almost want that extra step of mediation between them and God. But in Christ, Paul says that all who believe here are already sons of God. Because you're in Christ. You don't have to earn sonship. You already have it. We all have access to the Father directly because of Christ. Ephesians 3.12. In Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. He, he's torn the temple veil in two. We have access. In Hebrews 10.19 and 20, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. So by Him we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And that, that is where we keep, need to keep our eyes. That's where we need to focus if we're not going to fall off and tip off into legalism or tip off into antinomianism is not to look at those two things, but to look at Christ, who Christ has made us as sons of God by faith in Him. He's the one who liberates us from the bondage of the law and sin. He he is the end of the law for those who believe. He is righteousness in life, and He has made us sons of God, and in Him we have direct access as sons to the Father. Amen.